0: Thank you very much for that uh, very lavish introduction. Um, I hope you can hear at the back. I hope you can hear at the front. But if any of you can't hear, would you let me know? Because I'll pitch my voice up or make something happen to the microphone. I'm delighted to be in St. Paul's, but full of trepidation. Who wouldn't be uh, preaching or, sorry, <laughs> talking here? There we are. Um, right. Right. Outside the old St. Paul's on this site in 1526, that's not very long ago. If you remember, Jesus died at 33. That's, say, three lives a century. That's 500 years. That's only 15 lifetimes ago. In 1526, 3,000 copies of the New Testament in the English language were burned over three days. They'd been bought for this biblical inferno by the Bishop of London himself. The aim was to censor, in his own way, the translation of the scriptures into English. The translation was by William Tyndall, whose words would sweep Protestantism and the English language around the globe over the next 500 years. Three or four four years after the burning of those 3,000 books, they began the burning of people, who had bought or read or even spoken about this New Testament in English. London, under Henry VIII, became a foul nest of spies and informers and a furnace of repression, a citadel of torture. In 1517, Luther in Germany had set off a volcanic revolution. He challenged the Pope, the entire structure of the dominating Roman Catholic Church, and thereby the whole system of rule at that time, with the church and state being different sides of the same coin. He challenged the monopoly of Latin as the word of God. He wrote his own Bible in German. English was one of the only, in fact, I think the only great European country which did not have its own language spoken in the Bible. William Tyndall became the English champion of the movement, the Protestant movement, This was to change this country root and branch. As England's Protestant figurehead, he became known as the most dangerous man in England, even though he lived almost all his adult life away from this country. Quite simply, quite determinedly, and unrelentingly, Tyndall wanted the word of God in the language of the people, and he succeeded in that, but there was more as an unintended consequence of his writing, his style, and his vocabulary, he had a greater influence on the English language, this is said by linguistic historians, a greater influence on the English language than anyone, including Shakespeare. His words and phrases, not only his words and his thoughts and his phrases, not only enrich and remodel our literature, but enabled in time, the emergence of democracy in the Anglo-Saxon world and advance the cause of women and philanthropy, particularly in the 19th century. Tyndall profoundly believed that once the people of England heard the scriptures in their own tongue, then the duty to believe, the ancient barnacled duty to believe, would be superseded by the liberty to think. And in the iron innocence of his faith, He was convinced that all then would be well. What more could the people want? He was a genius of translation, just as Shakespeare was a genius of the imagination. On those two, we are fortunate to have our language built. He spent the greater part of his allied life in exile. He was hunted, Tyndall, by three separate intelligence networks. His friends and followers were murdered He himself was finally dungeoned for 16 months and burned to death for his vision of what the Bible could bring to this country in its own language. He was born in a wealth, Tyndall was born in a wealthy family in the West Country. Their money came from the wool trade, then our greatest cash crop. He went to Magdalen College School in Oxford when he was 12, then he transferred to the university and received an MA when he was 21. In that part of the West Country, there was, there was great doubt about the truth and strength and purity of the Catholic Church. Let me give you an example, a little example about how this was expressed. At about the time, there's a report from Gloucestershire. Uh, under Bishop Hooper, it found indulgence, sorry, negligence and ungodly behavior of the monasteries of Gloucestershire inhospitable, non-resident, inefficient, drunken, drunken and evil living was found in every deanery. Furthermore, at Wooden-under-Edge alone it was recorded that nine clergy did not know how many commandments there were. Thirty-three did not know where they appeared in the Bible. hundred and sixty-eight could not... This is a small town, Wooden-under-Edge, isn't it? hundred and sixty-eight could not repeat them. Thirty-nine did not know where the Lord's prayer appeared in the Bible. Thirty-four didn't know the author and were able, unable to recite it. There was much work to be done, but people had to hold their counsel. We had the great sacred text, the 381 translation by Jerome of the Bible into Latin. became known as the Vulgate, which was a sacred text. Not especially in this country at the time, not to be interfered with one syllable. He went to school. When he went to school in Oxford, the work was routine. It toughened him up for hard work. He started at 6 a.m. and went on till late in the afternoon. He complained there was far too much Latin, far too much of the classics, although he became brilliant in Cicero and Ovid and Virgil and Aesop. Uh In the end, he knew eight languages. Or he mastered eight languages. Uh, but he wanted there to be more study of the scriptures. For Tyndall, it was always the scriptures. As a boy, he'd come across Athelstan one of the kings, English kings in the ninth century, one of the Saxon kings, who set out to translate some of the Bible into English. And as a boy, he'd been inspired by it. And it's remarkable how many people who end up with the word genius attached to them with some cause started when they were very young, as if they wouldn't wait to get going. Newton with his prism at the fair, the Brontes writing their stories in those little books. And it was Tyndall's passion for Athelstan, this king, who wanted to translate the bible and so did he in oxford got a good education then he went to cambridge and encountered the influence of the great rotterdam scholar erasmus the humanist who believed in translating the bible into english uh, as it was in most of the other uh, european tongues but more importantly more importantly he said that to truly understand the meaning of the gospels you did not use the vulgate you did not use the Latin. You had to go back to the Greek in which it was originally written. You had to, if you went back to the original Greek, you were in touch with the Syriac, and you had the heart of the matter. This, for Tyndall, was completely a eureka moment. And it changed his life, and instantly he set himself to learn Greek, which he mastered. He, as I said, he ended up learning many languages. One was Greek, very important to him. Another was to be Hebrew. But the major influence in the time, as has been mentioned, was Luther, whose was a vol- volcanic influence. Very difficult to find a comparison, even in Trotsky and Stalin. Very difficult. Those 99 theses pinned to the church door changed church and state in Europe forevermore. A lasting change. Luther set up revolutions and mass uprisings across, let's call it, Europe, which terrified the rulers, not least Henry VIII and his chancellor, Cardinal Wolseley. Wolseley bought Luther's books and burnt them, again, outside there, in the fine Tudor tradition of censorship, which is to burn your opposition. Tyndall translated Greek into English, and so he was in danger. This was against the law. If caught, he would have been at the very least stripped of his priesthood. He would perhaps have been tortured, very quite likely, and even worse. So he was in danger from that. He was also in danger because he was known as a fiery young preacher. We miss that out sometimes. We have the sentences that he was a man of unspotted character, that he was a very gentle man. And that all seems to be true. But he went out there in the open air, as the Celtic monks had done, as John Ball had done, as the Methodists were later to do, and under what they saw as a direct guide to heaven, they preached to the people. And he preached down in the West Country. And it was the West Country where he went to work after Cambridge to be a tutor to give him some some time and some privacy and some secrecy, probably, to get on with translating the Bible into Greek. There are many incidents reported there. One stands out. One, I think, is seminal, and it's well-recorded. At at a dinner given by his patron, one night, there were many bishops and divines and so on there, and they were fed up with Tyndall. There was this 23-year-old young boy who contradicted all their arguments, who kept opening the Bible and saying, prove it, prove it, prove it, and none knew the scriptures as well as he did. So young master Tyndall became wearisome. That was the phrase. And one evening, one of the bishops said, Were I to have to decide between the laws of the Pope and the laws of God, I would choose the laws of the Pope. And Tyndall went incandescent, it is reported. And then he retorted, Ere long I will teach a ploughboy to know the scriptures better than me. And that, I see, is his guiding steer. The choice of the ploughboy was brilliant, First of all, the connection with the apostles working on the land, people who just did the ordinary work of life. But secondly, and most vitally, the ploughboy was illiterate. And Tyndall, from the beginning, wrote the Bible to be read aloud so that everyone could have access to it. He cultivated monosyllables. He used local phrases to set the New Testament free from the polysyllabic authoritarian monopoly of Latin. But he also opened it up to rhythms which became deeply stratified in English prose and in English poetry. It is just the smallest touch. Seeing the crowd, he went, up into a, he went up onto a mountain. Seeing the crowd, he went up onto the mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." Thus began, arguably I think, the greatest radical oration in Western history. He also wrote in his prose, seeking out the monosyllables, seeking from common speech, in such what became a modern style, founded on this basic English, that he became one of the greatest cultural artifacts of our history. But his reputation was tainted after that remark at the dinner. He was hauled into court in the West Country. He was, tr- quoted to quote him, treated worse than a dog. Only his vast knowledge of the scriptures got him off. But he was a marked man. He left the West Country, came to London, full of opportunities for c- clergy. His reputation as a translator already known. His reputation as a Greek scholar already known. He couldn't get a job anywhere. Bishop Tunstall, Bishop of London, was a good, decent enough man. You wouldn't give him any occupation whatsoever. Turn him away and turn him away. Tyndall preached in various places, looked around, but it was hopeless, and he knew it was hopeless, and he was completing his Greek. He was completing his translation, and what was he to do with it? It could not get printed in this city, but overseas, on the Europe. There are at least 70 printing presses, and so he risked everything, He must have got some money from his family who steadily in small ways supported him. He sailed down the Thames accompanied by nothing but his unconquerable mind and went to Germany looking for a printer for what would be his New Testament. And at the same time, he he rarefied his own thoughts, which are very like those of Luther, except he he pushed them a little further. Quite simply, if it was not in the Bible... It was not Christian. The Pope was not in the Bible. Pilgrimage was not in the Bible. Penitence was not in the Bible. Purgatory was not in the Bible. On and on it went. And a vastly wealthy church was not in the Bible. And so they had, to be, they had to be ignored. They had to be done away with. That was not what Jesus was preaching. And the only thing that mattered was to get the preaching of Jesus tr- properly translated because the only real thing that mattered was to save souls was to save the souls of people, and in that sense, they had to understand what, what was, in, what was in before them. Once their souls were saved, their mission on earth was completed. And he did this by the translation from the Greek, but also in subtle yet radical ways, quite brilliantly quiet, radical ways. For instance, in, from the Latin Vulgate, the word translated, translated as church. In Greek, Ecclesia, Tyndall translated as congregation. Not a church, not a place, not a building block in an edifice which stretched back to Rome, a congregation, a number of people, assembled together freely to discuss with one another. That set his opponents fury, to fury. And another small example there's a translation of a word into priest. He didn't want that. He took the Greek word and he translated it into elder. There was only one priest. There was only one intermediary between those seeking grace and God, and that was Jesus Christ. Priests were redundant. You can imagine. All that was redundant. He was pulling down the wealthiest establishment in the whole of Europe by far, the most dug in, the most interconnected with armies and alliances and so on, always being pulled down in the interest of getting at the word. And he mustn't be thought of as a quiet man who buried himself in a printing press and got on with doing the translation. There was that aspect, but there was also something utterly fearless about him. That's just not words, it's proved again and again. When the first English translation was being done in Cologne, there was, some, there was an Englishman making a book of his own in Cologne, translating a, printing a book of his own. He squealed to the local authorities, who squealed to Henry VIII, who sent his intelligence back, and troops went in to smash the press where Tyndall was printing his New Testament. Tyndall got wind of it. Somehow or other, outwitted the people who came in, dashed through the town, took enough with them to start again, got onto a boat on the Rhine and sailed away from Cologne up to Wittenberg. up to to worms and again at one stage he was shipwrecked he lost everything in the shipwreck came back and started again he was a bold and fearless man he would do anything to fulfil what he saw his mission so the books came in 1525, 26 to London Uh, they were sent over, many books had come from the Netherlands, it was not a new thing and at first they were just books and then at the first 1,000 came across without so much fuss. Then a few days later, people realized what had hit them. Tyndall was the English Luther. Tyndall was the enemy among them. The fact that he was over the sea made him even more and more and more of a monster. Tyndall was the man they had to get. And they got him in their usual way. First of all, they burnt the books. They burnt the 3,000 books. Then they burned other books. Then they arrested anybody who knew Tyndall. Who'd been at college with Tyndall, who admitted to reading Tyndall, who made a reference to Tyndall. That slight was enough, that slight relationship was enough for them to be arrested and at least tortured uh, and put in the tower and so on. Public humiliations, threats, and eventually, of course, after you burn the books, you burn the people. And the smell of burning flesh began to pollute the skies of this city. Henry VIII had declared he had been made the defender of the faith, and he wanted to prove himself the most determined of the Catholic defenders across Europe, as determined as the Pope. And even though Thomas Cromwell and Anne Boleyn wanted to intervene for Tyndall, and even though Tyndall gave them a chance by a book called uh, On the Obedience of Kings, he withdrew that, he withdrew the arguments there and put in more subtle arguments, he didn't have a chance. Henry VIII was driving it forward. And then what happened in this city? And again, it's not all that long ago. What happened in this city, which we like to think happened in other places, what happened here was a sort of mass hysteria. Charles Lamb later called it a malice. It gripped the city. To give an example that might surprise you, most unexpectedly, one of the leaders for a part of the time was Sir Thomas, later St. Thomas Moore. The king ordered him to discredit and destroy Tyndall. And he set out to do so. His views on Tyndall were nothing short. He'd written Utopia. This is about the apocalypse. This is what he wrote If Tyndall's testament be taken up, then shall false heresies be preached. Then shall the sacrament be set at naught. Then shall Almighty God be displeased. Then shall he withdraw his grace and let all run to ruin. Then will rise up rifling and robbery, murder and mischief and plain insurrection. Then all laws be left to scorn. Tyndall replied to him in a letter exchange of 750,000 words. And on Thomas Moore's side, the level of scotology is unbelievable. Not to be spoken here in this building or frankly anywhere else. So that that was Moore's point of view. If Tyndall's views were taken on board, there would be Armageddon beside the Thames. It's said that in, by Fox that in his Chelsea gardens, Thomas More had a tree called the Tree of Truth to which he lashed people, put people who he thought uh, had something to do with Protestantism and himself whipped them, took them, to the, took them to the tower, saw them tortured and lamed and then followed them to Smithfield to see them burnt. It's in reply to all Moore's charges. His essays now took the part of his preaching. But there was nothing much he could do; he was over there. If he came back, he'd have been instantly burnt. But over there, there was still work to do, and he started to learn Hebrew, which he did, learning him on his own, so that he could translate the Old Testament again from the Hebrew, instead of from a ragtag and bobtail translating translation of the Latin. He rejoiced in the compatibility between the Hebrew and Old English. He found that Hebrew helped him far more than Latin had ever done. He found words and forms of words which slotted straight into Old English, into Germanic English, 5th century English, which are still the basis of our language. And those two, plus his determination to bring in commonplace words, I think are what give his later work such power and such accessibility and such lastingness. They were still trying to catch him. He wandered around the street, he stayed in the wall house, connections with the wall, 5,000 strong wall house. A big, it's our biggest industry over there. He was hidden in and out of the wall house. There was no picture of him. Nobody knew what he looked like. He was just another scholar with a long black gown, Antwerp was full of them. And how did you catch him? Well, they didn't, he was clever, he slipped, he changed lodgings, he this, that, and the other. A diplomat was sent, a man called Stephen Vaughan, a very sympathetic man, who sought out and found connections with Tyndall and persuaded them that he had come from Henry VIII. Now, Tyndall believed in kings. Kings are in the Bible. His essay on the disobedience, on the obedience of kings, uh, Henry VIII said, this is a book that all kings should read. Uh, He found out where Tyndall was, and they met in the woods. When I went to film there, we met in the the similar woods, as it were, uh, nearby and told him the king wanted him back. And Tyndall knew what that would mean. It would mean that he was be tried, found guilty of heresy, and murdered. So he played his time. But he was very, and from the, they're worth reading those letters of Vaughan. They're brilliantly written. They're brilliant diplomatic letters. And they were trained in memory, those people. Uh, Memory was a big muscle that they were brought brought up with. And Tyndall's frailty, his, Genuineness, his sorrow at missing his country and his friends and not hearing his language enough. But he went back and then Bourne came back again and with an offer from the king, he could come back. He would put him on the council, the king said wildly, Henry VIII. He just had to get him back. There was somebody who wrote, about, I think a Venetian ambassador said, the king of England doth want Tyndall in his country before he writes any more harmful, material, harmful pamphlets, anything more harmful about him. They were desperate to get him. Tyndall glided away back into the woods, went into Antwerp by another gate, and was not found. The third time Bourne came to him, he came to him with an extraordinary letter, which is a rejection letter, except for a 138 word postscript written by Thomas Cromwell, who contradicted everything that Henry VIII had said and he said, Do, Please come. We want you back. I, the king, the king will forgive you. He will take you on. He believes in you now. He Is now as a king, he's beginning to be a Protestant. And Tyndall then said, it's better to read it, but Tyndall said yes, he would come back. And Vaughan was, couldn't believe it. And then Tyndall said, but there's one thing. There has to be a translation of the Bible into English. It needn't be mine, it needn't be your name. There's got to be some Translation of the Bible into the English language before I come back. Then I will come back. Bowen took that uh, message back to the court and Tyndall never heard from him again. He was finally betrayed. He was betrayed by another Oxford man. It's very much an Oxford story and some of it does Oxford not much credit at all. This was a younger man, Henry Phillips, who came from the West Country like Tyndall, ...who was very papist, very anti-Protestant... ...a swindler, he cheated his own father... ...a gambler, utterly dissolute, dreadful person... ...who saw that he could make a fortune, which he did... ...if he were the man who got them to Tyndall. And he worked through the court of the Holy Roman Emperor... ...and he got the procurator-general on his side. There was a big bounty on Tyndall's head... ...and a big m- m- bounty of money for the procurator-general... ...if he found him. Phillips ingratiated himself, somehow got into the wall House and he, he pointed he was the Judas I don't really like to speak about Phillips he's such a disgusting, dreadful, trivial second rate person just think boy, what happened if Tyndall had lived You would got to the Psalms, he'd have translated the Psalms just think what that would have been anyway the, there was a tunnel outside the wall house Phillips was tall Tyndall was short Phillips sent Tyndall ahead of him I've been down that place ahead of him. and as they came out Phillips, and this is the word, fingered, Tyndall. Maybe that's where their word came from. The Swiss guards came out and took him. And one of them said, we pitied him in his simplicity. They took him to a medieval castle which had a deep dungeon and a billboard near Brussels, and he was there for the last 16 months of his life. In 1536, he was degraded. That is to say, his, his, his priest's robes were taken off, The chalice was given to him, then taken away from him. He was no longer a priest. Uh, And then a few days later, he was taken to the stake. But before then, he sent a letter to the men who imprisoned him. And it's a marvelous letter. I'm only time to say a few words from it. He was obviously in rags, literally in rags, he hadn't a hat. He was cold. I dodged three or four. It's his northern Europe in winter. Uh, he wanted, he asked for if he could have a candle from his own possessions. Can you have a candle? Could you send me another shirt and so on? And, I, and, and then this is how he ended it. But first of all, I beg and beseech your clemency. This is the man he's writing to. That you will kindly permit me to have the Hebrew Bible, Hebrew grammar, and Hebrew dictionary, so that I may pass the time in that study. In return, may you obtain what you most desire, so only that it be the salvation of your soul. There was no reply. He was taken out. The crowds were there. He was, by that time, what had been for a while, an enormous celebrity. Who was this man, this Tyndall? This wigwam was built. Loose gunpowder was thrown in it to make it burn faster. He was put on, supposedly strangled, just before he was burned. And his last words were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. He said, how can the King be so unkind as to stop his people reading the work of God? Before Tyndall's death, Henry had become a Protestant. Before Tyndall's death, Henry had started publishing Asked for books in the English, the Bible in the English language. He never asked Tyndall, he would never listen to Tyndall, have Tyndall's name spoken again. Tyndall published his work anonymously. And so his his instance, Coverdale, and then Matthew, so f- false name, Matthew, others copied, plagiarized, ripped off him for Bible after Bible after Bible in the 16th century, right up to St. James Bible. And people said. When he came in the 19th century, Tyndall, who is this Tyndall? Nobody knew who he was. He'd been erupt out of history until some scholars got to work and looked at it. And his most important contribution, vital contribution, I think, for all sorts of... If you're a Protestant, absolutely vital. If you're interested in our language, vital. If you're interested in democracy, because it's vital. The most important thing was in the King James Bible his contribution is unbelievable. In the New Testament of the King James Bible, supposedly put together by these 50 scholars chosen by James, over 93% is by William Tyndall. And in the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, uh, which he just had time to do before he was, before he was captured, is over 85%. We now know that through the century through others his work influenced for instance Shakespeare and from Shakespeare to Dunn and writer and it influenced literature right up to Tony Morrison these days. Influenced Shakespeare, A.L. Rouse says he quotes from 42 books in, uh, in, in Tyndall, Shakespeare does. Here's a couple of specific instances. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing and one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father? That's in Matthew. In Hamlet, there is a special providence in the fall of a sparrow. If you've been now, it is not to come. If you've been not to come, it will be now. And he has fun with Midsummer Night's Dream. In Corinthians, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. And in the Midsummer Night's Dream, the eye of man hath not heard, the ear of man hath not seen. Man's hand is not able to taste his tongue to conceive, nor his heart to report what my dream was. And on it goes. I think it's worthwhile ending with a few of his words. There are hundreds of them. And I bet, I'm not not in a church, I can't bet, a cathedral, I can't bet at all. But I would guess that today, most of you have used or thought of some, even of this small selection, words invented for the English language. Or taken from the country, or taken from the community by Tyndall. Cast the first stone. The salt of the earth. Fight the good fight. Monosyllable, monosyllable, monosyllable. Sick unto death, broken hearted, clear-eyed, the powers that be, the fat of the land, let there be light, and on we go. And I know there's a Bible here, a Tyndall Bible here, but it's interesting that there's only one totally complete Bible. Anywhere. and I went to see it, it's in Stuttgart in the Bible in a Bible cask in Stuttgart which is enormous, Bibles, Bibles, Bibles Bibles, and they brought it to me and it's that big and there was a sort of sense of disappointment you mean it's only that big and it's that plain and then you realise that once again the quiet genius has struck because that can be slipped into any pocket hidden in the folds of any clothes, passed from person to person, doesn't have to be publicly put on a pedestal or whatever it is, or a lectern. It can go the rounds through to the people, through the people. And from there grew everything that accrued to our language. One of the words he invented was beautiful. And it's a beautiful thing, I think, here in St. Paul's, so near the site where a powerful and cruel state tried to rub out his language, our language, which he heightened and deepened and to which he'd given such a long life and such a fruitful life. But above all, what mattered to him was that he found words so that everyone could equally share truly in the faith. And that's what we're celebrating, this great, modest, transforming genius who gave those words to us, to everyone, and sacrificed his own life for it so that we could hear and read in our own tongue the words that he truly believed came from God. Thank you.